Turn to Acts chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible today, our ushers have some that you can use. They actually have some that you can have. So as they go up and down the aisle, if you see someone walking with a stack of Bibles, those are for you. If you need one, just wave at them so you can follow along as we read God's Word together. And make sure you reach inside your bulletin and grab out your sermon notes so you can follow along as we continue today in what we're calling 2015, the year of Jesus Church. We're studying the book of Acts all year long to learn what Jesus Church looks like, to learn how Jesus Church operates, and to learn how we can find our place within Jesus Church. We spent two weeks in Acts chapter 1, and here's what we learned. We learned the first message given to the church was get to work. Get to work for the good of others. The disciples, after Jesus had raised from the dead, had spent 40 days with them, said, now what's in it for us? And Jesus said, here's what's in it for you. I'm going to give you a gift but it's going to be for others. So you need to get to work for the good of others. We also learned in Acts chapter 1 that there are no unimportant people in God's church. Although there are sometimes unknown people in God's church, like there were in Acts chapter 1, there are no unimportant people. It takes us all to accomplish the work that God has called us to do. We then turn to Acts chapter 2, and we learned in Peter's message in Acts chapter 2 that we are a chosen generation. And we are living in the last days. If 2,000 years ago was the last days, we said we're in the laster days because we're, we're much further along in the last lap than they were. And then last week we saw just a glimpse of the church in Acts 2, 42 through 47, and we saw the impact of sharing. We saw what happens when a community of people is willing to share their lives with each other and share their homes with each other and share their scheduling with each other. And we saw the impact of people sharing their resources with one another for the good of all. And today we turn to Acts chapter 3. And today we truly see one of the great acts of the apostles. And people ask me all the time, why is the book of Acts name the book of Acts. Matthew wrote Matthew, Mark wrote Mark, Luke wrote Luke, John wrote John. Did Acts write Acts? No. The book was named Acts by church fathers because they said the 28 chapters of the book of Acts are filled with the acts that the apostles did to start the church. And in John chapter 3, we see one of the greatest acts of the apostles. If you're in God's word with me, let's read together. Starting in verse 1, it says, One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going in to the temple courts. Now let's stop right there. One thing I love about the Bible is it happened in real life, in real places, places that you and I can go visit. The stories of scripture didn't happen on the seventh moon of, of Mars. They happened on planet earth. And just a few Months ago, we were in Israel, and you can barely see it in this picture, but you can see those three archways. That's right on the south side of the Temple Mount. That's actually the beautiful gate. Those gates have been filled in, but those are them. If you go to the next picture, you can see them better. Those stairs, those gates, that wall was there 2,000 years ago. Peter and John were there 2,000 years ago. This beggar was there 2,000 years ago. This really happened, and there's where it's happened, and you can go there and visit it if you want. Let's continue in this very true story in a very real place. Verse 3. Now, when he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked him for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold, I don't have. But what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantaneously, the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet, and he began to walk. 
Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished. And they came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. And when Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, as we look into this act, this miraculous, supernatural act in Acts chapter 3, when we look at this act of the apostles, what we see is the process and the result of a life-changing gift. We see what happens when someone is able to look at their life through the lens of somebody who has been given something that can gift to somebody else, we see the process and the result of a life-changing gift. And what we learn is pretty miraculous. Whether you've been in church your entire life or whether you're just visiting today, what you learn about giving and why people give and how people give and what people give is pretty impressive from Acts chapter 3. Here's the first thing we learn from the lips of Peter. Every person should understand, I can only give what I have. That's what Peter says in verse 6. I love how how honest Peter is. In verse 6, he says, listen, I can only give what I have. You can only give from what you have. In verse 6, after Peter was asked for money, Peter looked at the beggar and said, silver and gold, I, I don't have. I don't have. But what I do have, I'll give you. This shows us that perspective is everything. This shows us that perspective is everything because Peter, in his attitude... Could have said to the guy, listen, I don't, I don't have any silver or gold. Wish I did. Man, if I did, I might give you some. If, if you find a good place to, to give me some, let me know. If you have a really good day begging today, hey, holler at me. I'll be by at the end of the day. Perspective is everything because Peter understood what he didn't have, but he also understood what he did have. And the focus of Peter's statement is not on what he lacked, but on what he had. And the focus of Acts chapter 1 is not on giving what we don't have, but on giving what we have, what we can have. We see this in John chapter 6. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn to John chapter 6 because we learn a powerful lesson on perspective. And by the way, people always ask, why do they put strings in the Bible? So you can flip back and forth between two passages. So throw the strings in Acts chapter 3 because we'll be right back there. And flip over to John chapter 6, because in John chapter 6, we see one of Jesus' greatest miracles, the feeding of the 5,000. But we see perspective on giving and having to give shape this miracle, and they will shape the miracle of your life when you give. In John 6, it says, sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and he sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him for he already had in mind what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages 
to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. He said, here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Let me ask you a question. Are you Philip or are you Andrew? Are you Philip or are you Andrew? Meaning this, when you have an opportunity to lean in and make a difference with something, when you see how you can be a part of something great big, do you see the obstacle when, when someone says, here's what we're trying to do together? Do you automatically think of what you can't give or what you can give? Do you see situations as being just absolutely impossible and you have nothing to contribute? Or do you see a huge situation and although God may have only given you a little bit, you believe if If you can contribute a little bit, maybe God can do something with it. Because Philip looked at the situation, and Philip said probably what everyone was thinking, Jesus, this is an impossible situation. We're not going to be able to pull this one off. Andrew looked at the same situation as equally as impossible, and his idea was nearly as worthless, except his perspective was different. He said, what you've asked is impossible. However, we've got this little thing. Like, we've got some loaves. And we got some fish. Not exactly sure how that's going to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. But instead of seeing it as hopeless, I can give what I have. It's not very much. Actually, I stole it from the kid or the kid gave it to me. I'm not sure how that worked. We got a little bit. Maybe you can take a little bit, Jesus, and and make it a lot. And what's interesting, when you look at the Apostle Peter, the the statement Peter makes in verse 6 is not a statement of frugality. I've got a little bit, but I've got to hang on to it. It's actually a statement of generosity. He says, I can't give what I don't have. The guy said, I like some gold and silver. He said, man, me too, but I don't have any of that. However, what I do have, I give. You know, the spiritual truth that we learn through having and giving in Acts chapter 3 is that our best in God's hands is always enough. Say, how does that happen? I have no idea. God does it. But I know from Acts chapter 3, I know from John chapter 6 that our best in God's hands is always enough. So we're in week five of this Difference Maker series trying to press forward as a church to build a building together. We believe it's time to build a building. And I have said from the first week, and I want to say again today, especially if you're brand new today, we don't need you to give anything to the building. And if you've had bad experiences in the past or you're just at a place where you don't have anything right now, this message is not to make you feel bad or to convince you to give what you don't have. But many of us, have been spoken to that it's time to lean into this project. And one of the overriding feelings of even people who are giving is, I wish I could give more. What I want to show you is that if you can just give what you have because you can't give what you don't have, and everyone does that, somehow it will be enough. Because our best in God's hands is always enough. I love what Peter also said as he continued in verse 12. Peter said, I need you to know I have what I have because of Jesus. So the man said, hey, do you you have any money? And he said, actually, don't. But I do have something. I'm I'm filled with Jesus, and I can help you understand who Jesus is, and Jesus can change your life. And then after Jesus did that, and people were drawn to the generosity of Peter, Peter said, hang on, hang on, hang on. I can't take the credit for this. I only have what I have because of Jesus. Look at verse 12. Take those strings. Flip back to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, verse 12. It says, when Peter saw the people rushing to him, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? And I love this. And why do you stare at us if by our own power or our godliness, we made 
this man walk. Peter very quickly admits that it's not his power or his level of godliness that allows him to impact people. It's only Jesus. And, and we were taught this theology when we were younger. Some of us even learned this theology growing up in traditional churches. But it's a theology that, that I don't know as we grow into adults and we pursue Jesus if we really believe anymore. Remember that little song for those of you who grew up in church that we used to sing in Sunday school? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. All of us to him belong, we are. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that you're spiritually weak? Do you really believe that you're so spiritually weak that without Jesus and a connection to Jesus, you can't do anything spiritually? Do you really believe that? Because I think we live in a church that feels pretty good about themselves spiritually. Did any of you grow up in a traditional church singing the old hymns? Remember that hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound? That saved a... Do you really believe you're a wretch spiritually? I want you to think about that word. That word wretch means wretched means worthless. Do you really believe you're worthless spiritually without Jesus? Because we live in a world that that now wants to give grace to God instead of God giving grace to us. We live in a world that says, kind of here's how I am, and I'm good. And God, if you want to love me just like this, I'll give you some grace to do that. But if you don't like me me for me, you're out. We don't live in a world that believes we're spiritually wretched. Do you really believe that you were born spiritually worthless and without Jesus, you wouldn't be, be anything? And that everything that was created in your DNA is wretched until it's shaped and given over to Jesus? Do you really believe that? Because Peter believed that. He said, why do you think we had anything to do with this? Why do you think we're powerful? We're not. Why do you think we're godly? We're not. But we are people who love Jesus very much. And Jesus is very powerful. And Jesus is perfect. And because of what Jesus has done in me, a little bit of that is starting to rub off on me. But I'm not trying to be like me. I'm trying to be like Jesus. Because Jesus has changed this man's life. Peter very humbly deflects the attention from what he did, from what he had, to what Jesus had given him and what Jesus had allowed him to do. Peter was not a spiritual superhero. Peter just knew Jesus. And if we look at verses 13 and verse 16, we see Peter talk about Jesus. Look at Acts 3.13. The God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. Circle the word Jesus. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, though Pilate had decided to let him go. Look at verse 16. By faith in the name of Jesus. Circle the word Jesus. This man whom you see and know was made strong. It is in Jesus' name. Circle the word Jesus. And the faith that comes through Jesus that has healed him completely, as you can see. Hey, Peter, how did this happen? Peter says three words, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I have what I have because of Jesus. Now, when a person gets to this level of spiritual belief, I have what I have because of Jesus. Giving is always giving back. It's never seen as sacrifice. It's never really even seen as being generous. It's just seen as giving back. When you really believe you have what you have because of Jesus, giving is, is, giving, is giving back. It's not even giving anything of yours because it was given to you in the first place. On January 4th, we met with 150 of our volunteers and we cast the vision for our building and what God had called us to do and how we believe we were going to need everyone's help who 
God had called to help us to complete the project. And immediately after that night, one of the men came up to me and said, my grandfather told me it's all God's. All we do is move it around anyway. That's the type of theology I'm talking about. Everything I have, I have because it's all his anyway. He can have all of it if he wants. I don't have to worry. I don't have to care. I can trust. It's all God's anyway. I just, I guess he wants, he wants to borrow a little bit of what he's given me and I can trust him to give more. I have what I have because of Jesus. When people get to this level of belief, they're willing to give staggering gifts. They're willing to give gifts that have tremendous impact. Take those strings and throw them in Acts chapter 3 and go back to John chapter 12. Because in John chapter 12, we see somebody give such a staggering gift that Jesus, after it's given, said, Man, what you have done is so incredible that I'm going to make sure anyone who ever reads the Bible reads what you have done. It's one of the only times in scripture that Jesus said, what you did was so incredible, I'm going, to be make sure, I'm going to make sure it's written down forever. And what it was was an act of generosity. In John chapter 12, starting in verse 1, it says, Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet. She wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, as a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. It's a really interesting little text of scripture here, but it shows us, it shows us kind of the process and the power of, of a staggering gift. We know from looking at Mary's story that you give a staggering gift when you use your wealth to draw attention to Jesus. When you use something you've worked hard for, when you work something when you give something you've saved hard for, when you lean in and give a part of what you have to bring attention to Jesus, this becomes a staggering gift. And this is what Mary had done. Mary had worked hard for this perfume. If you study the scholars of the New Testament and the scholars of history, they would say that Mary had worked her entire life for this perfume. And, and possibly this was not something she ever wore. This was her retirement. This was her 401k. We know that this perfume, according to what we read in Scripture, was worth a year's wages or probably, experts say, $50,000 of U.S. money. You don't wear something that, that costs that much. Because in those days, you didn't invest in your retirement in stocks and bonds. You, you invested in sheep and goats. You invested in things that had value that you could later cash in on so that you could keep living. So Mary, a woman in this generation 2,000 years ago, for her to have something of this value, Jesus said she saved it for this purpose. The thought of saving is a little bit out of everything she's ever earned. She's invested in this for her future. And she just traded her future, her future, to draw attention to me. Scripture says that it filled the entire house with the fragrance of perfume. Dave Ramsey, in his latest book called The Legacy Journey, tells a story. And he says from what he has studied, not only would the house have smelled like perfume, the entire village would have smelled like perfume. It was this strong of a perfume. 
If you've ever been to a third world country and been in a village where houses are on top of houses, on top of houses, on top of houses, and no one has windows and doors, you can understand how this would happen. The entire village was drawn to Jesus based on a gift that one person gave. Secondly, we see that people give staggering gifts when they give something that they've worked very hard for. And here's Mary who had saved up for this. Her entire life she saved for something for her that she was now going to give to Jesus. You know, thirdly, you give a staggering gift when those close to you would question it. And they would say, I mean, you're out of your mind to ever give that much to anything. What about the next project? What about next year? What about your retirement? What about when you turn 50? What about your kids going to college? What about when your car breaks down? What about when the kids need braces? You know you're giving a gift that's staggering in the eyes of Jesus and people when you're almost embarrassed to tell anyone what you're doing because everyone would say, you're crazy for giving that to anyone. You know you're giving a staggering gift when God keeps stirring something deep inside of you about it. It's interesting through this process for those who have felt like they're supposed to really lean into and help us in this process of building a building. How everyone has said, maybe not everyone, but I I bet two dozen, I bet 25 couples have made the statement to me, the last one on the sidewalk walking in this morning, that Christian, as soon as we heard about this process, we began to think about a number. And I went to my wife and it was like nearly identical. Like we think it was some God laid on our heart, but we're just not sure how we're going to get there. And, And they talk about this thing that was laid on their heart and they just keep rolling it over and over and over, trying to figure out, God, how, how do I do this? And you know you give a staggering gift because when you give a staggering gift, it creates a moment in your life that you'll never forget and that the people who are blessed by it will never forget. Which is why Jesus said to Mary when, when she gave this tremendous gift to him, this generous sacrificial gift to him, he said, Mary, what you have done is so incredible that I'm going to make sure anyone who ever reads the Bible hears about your gift because people need to learn this type of generosity. However, 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 within this text of Scripture creeps a spiritual attitude that's dangerous. Because right in the midst of this display of generosity to, to Jesus, right in the midst of it, somebody speaks up and says, man, should we be wasting this money on Jesus? Somewhere in the midst of, for those of you who feel led or for those of you who ever give to a church, somewhere in the midst of your mind, someone's going to sneak up and say, should we be giving this money to a church? Should we, should we be giving this money to Jesus? Can't we do maybe more with this if we give it to people who need it? And the reality is, we learn from John chapter 12, some people are hesitant to give a staggering gift to Jesus and his church because they've had some bad experiences with the church. And they, they look at what we're trying to do. They look at what's happening here and they think, that's crazy. I'd never give money to a church. Judas had this spirit in John chapter 12. Now, he didn't want to help poor people. He wanted to steal it. But we see this thought creep up of, you sure you want to give that to Jesus? You know, when we look at how we feel about the church and how Jesus feels about the church, it's radically different. There's a lot of us in this room who might not like the church all the time, but Jesus loves it. There are many of us, if we've been around church long enough, we see a lot of the flaws in the church, but Jesus sees its potential. 
There are a lot of us who have experienced some type of disappointment in our past through the church, but Jesus has seen the impact of the church for over 2,000 years. And actually, it was Jesus that said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And it was Jesus in Revelation 21 who three different times referred to the church as his bride. Jesus loves the church. Jesus believes in the church. And you know, those of us who are church planners, church planners are kind of a renegade group of people who most of the time start their churches with a negative view of church. It's, it's what's pushed them out of where they were to start something different. They experienced something, they experienced some call of God where they thought, you know, if I did it, I think I'd do it a little different. I, didn't, I don't like how this is done. And kind of church planners sometimes are the biggest critics of the church. And I was one of those. And I had a few mentors speaking to me early in the process that just really challenged me. They kept saying, Christian, you're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong. You need to quit saying that about the church. You need to quit blogging that about the church. You need to quit posting those links about the, you need to, you need to leave Jesus' church alone. I had one pastor say to me, Christian, you know how when, when you got married, man, you just thought your wife was perfect. Things were going to be, going to be great. You remember how much you loved your bride on your wedding day? And and then you're married and life goes on and you realize some of the faults and flaws that are there. That's why, you know, I, I've never personally experienced that, but I, I've, heard about, I've heard about things like that, you know. Daniel's not even in this service, but in case she watches, it's like, no, I've, I've, I've actually not experienced any flaws in my wife. But I've counseled some people who have. Yeah, I get that. And he's like, man, Jesus, as long as Jesus' church has people in it, it's going to be some flaws. But he's like, Jesus loves his church. And I had one pastor tell me, he said, Christian, here's the advice that I would give you. I would be as openly negative about Jesus' church from the stage, in conversations, on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, in blogs. He said, I would be as negative about Jesus' church in public as I would be about another man's wife and a man you respect a whole lot because that's what you're doing. Every time you say something negative about the church, you post something negative about the church. You draw people's attention to the negativity of the church. You're saying, look at Jesus' bride. Isn't she ugly? I had another mentor who was my strength coach when I played football in college. I saw him bench 600 pounds when I was a freshman in high school. He still weighs like 325. He's a huge man. And after having one of these conversations with me, he said, Christian, I want you to know, if you talked about my wife like you talk about Jesus' bride... He said, I would pin you to the wall and you would never forget it. And do you think Jesus loves his church more than I love Christina? And I kind of said, yes, sir. Please, please, don't hurt her. please don't hurt me, sir. It's afraid to look him in the eye. And there's this attitude sometimes. And you've you got to figure out where it comes from of a hesitancy to give to Jesus. Because Jesus loves his church in spite of its flaws. Jesus loves his church in place of its flaws. Jesus loves his church in reaction to the flawed people in it. Jesus loves his church through the duration of the flaws. Jesus loves his church with a 1 Corinthians 13 type of love that, that is always pure. It never writes down wrongs. It never keeps a list of things. And a lot of Christians love the church with an Old Testament type of love. Like as long as it's perfect, we love it. The instant something goes wrong, we cut it off. Like we are Old Testament in our relationship with Jesus' bride. And we don't want to be a church. We don't want to be a church like that. You know, poverty is a problem, but it's not the greatest problem in the world. Sickness and disease is a problem, but it's not the greatest problem 
in the world. Tragedy is a problem, but it's not the greatest problem in the world. The greatest problem in the world is that people are separated from Jesus, and they need Jesus. And he said, I'm going to use my church to reach people. They need to be connected to God. One of my favorite Super Bowl commercials was the one with all the old people. I don't know if you watch the Super Bowl and remember people 104, 106, 108, 111, 113, maybe one that was 114, speaking about how things used to be. And then it showed them or some blue screen, green screen of them, like flying around in new cars that have been updated. You know, as I saw that commercial, I thought somehow all these people, 100 plus, they've, beat, they, they've gotten through poverty. I'm sure they lived through it, but it didn't kill them. They've gotten through sickness and disease up to this point. They've made it through tragic circumstances. But they are all going to enter eternity at some point. They've beat all that, but I wonder if anyone's told them about Jesus. You see, when we believe that broken people need to be fixed or that sick people need to be made well. We might feel that we can provide the answer. And we might say, I don't need to give to Jesus and what Jesus is doing. Here's what I feel led to do to help people. However, John chapter 12 was about Lazarus. Lazarus was not sick and needing medicine. Lazarus was not hungry hungry and needing food. Lazarus was dead and he needed life. And when we believe that dead people need to live, we have to rely on Jesus because we can't write that check. We have to say, Jesus, what's your plan for bringing dead people back to life? And Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Listen, if you are in here and bad experiences have shaped a spirit in your heart that struggles against Jesus' church, just be prayerful about that spirit. Be prayerful about a spirit that struggles to connect to Jesus because of the flaws in the church. They aren't flaws in Jesus and they aren't flaws in his plan. It's just people that are human that have messed up. But, but don't, don't never invest in Jesus. Because Jesus is changing the world. You need to understand, I believe in Jesus' church. I believe in the impact of Jesus' church. I believe in the future of Jesus' church. I believe in the purpose of Jesus' church. I believe in the power of Jesus' church. I believe in the sustainability of Jesus' church. I don't believe it's going anywhere, just like he said. But it takes Christians who are willing to see that and invest in Jesus for it to keep going. And then we see in Acts chapter 3 that the results of a life-changing gift When you look back on them, they're always worth the sacrifice of that gift. Whatever you had to give up to give a life-changing gift, it's always worth the sacrifice when you look back. Look at Acts 3, verses 16, verse 19, and verse 26. In verse 16, Peter said, By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It's in Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that is completely healed him as you can see look at verse 19 repent then and turn to god so your sins may be wiped out that times of refreshing may come from the lord look at verse 26 when god raised up his servant he sent him first to you to bless you so what happens what happened in acts chapter 3 with this life-changing gift what happens when we are willing to give a life-changing gift life-changing gifts bring strength number one this man who was hurt has been strengthened we are weak He is strong. When we get the life of Jesus, we are strong. It brings healing, number two. This man who you see has been completely healed, Jesus said. Number three, it brings refreshing. Repent. Call on God. Because refreshing times are ahead. Has life been hard? Has life been overwhelming? Sure it has. There are refreshing times ahead for those who connect to Jesus. And it brings blessing. 
When God raised up Jesus, he sent him to bless you. That's why Jesus wants to be in your life. He wants to bless you. And when we look at the results of life-changing gifts, and we look at those, more than 100 people, our finance team tells me now, more than 100 couples who have leaned into this process and more between now and March 1 are coming. You need to understand your gift towards a building for our church will be life-changing. It's going to be life-changing for people. Your gift at its best. And you say, my, my gift just looks like a, some, bre- some fish and crackers. Your best is good enough in God's hands. Your gift towards a building will be life-changing. And guess what? Our gift of a building for our community will be life-changing. So as we lean in together to build something, together then we hand a gift from us to the community and say, here you go. And it becomes life-changing. Because God draws people to churches to have their life changed. We began a a campaign that we're calling Story last fall at our church. Where we have a desire to teach everyone in our church how to, to, to learn their story and to be able to tell their story through the lens of who God is and what God has done. In December, all of our pastors videotaped and showed you our stories. And tonight in small groups, more than 30 small groups will begin. And over the next seven weeks, they'll teach everyone in small groups how to tell their story through the lens of who Jesus has been for them. But every month, we're taking some of those small group leaders, and we want to show you their stories. Chris Zerby, who's sitting back there in the very back, and his wife, Amy, Several years ago, Chris was one of my closest spiritual friends. We were accountability partners. Every Wednesday night, we met, discussed what God was doing in our life. He was one of the very first people that knew that God was stirring my heart to plant a church. And as we were growing spiritually in, a, in the direction that God was shaping us, Chris and Amy became the very first people to say, you know, if, if this is the type of church you're going to build, we want to help you. They were the very first people that ever gave to our church. They were the very first people we ever prayed with about this church. They, they are some of the only people who sold their house, moved to Lee Summit to become a part of our church and to get closer so they could have huge impact in this community. And as we began to tell our stories to the church, I asked Chris to videotape his story so that you might know how Jesus and his church are changing lives. So take a look as Chris tells his story. Hello, my name is Chris, and this is my story. I was born November 27, 1979, at Luke Air Force Base just outside of Phoenix, Arizona, to a single mother named Dana. I didn't find out who my biological father was until 2009, but that's a whole other story in itself. Shortly after I was born, my mother was transferred to an Air Force Base in Florida, and um, shortly after I turned two, Um, she actually chose to take her own life. She had struggled with depression her whole life. My grandfather, who uh, lives here in Overland Park, and my uncle, they drove down and they picked me up and they brought me back to to Kansas City. So I stayed in Overland Park for for a few months with my grandparents as they tried to figure out what what they were going to do with me. But I had a, a second cousin in Wichita who he and his wife were unable to have kids, but they really wanted kids. They, uh, they asked them, would you be interested in adopting Chris? And um, they accepted the, the opportunity. I grew up in a very strict home with lots of rules, uh, but one of the rules was we went to church every Sunday. Grew up believing in Jesus, knowing that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, knowing that, that he, was, he was God in human form. And I, 
I believed it. That's uh, that's that's all I've ever ever known. That's all I've ever believed. But I never had much direction around me in terms of well, what does a Christian do now, and what does uh, how does a Christian live, and how are they supposed to act? Even though I was a rebellious, two-faced teen, I never really got involved in the partying and smoking and drinking while I was in high school. I didn't really care too much about school. It was all about basketball and, and wanting to go get a scholarship to play somewhere. Towards the end of my junior year, I met a girl, and she was a she was a very good Christian girl from a solid Christian family. She was the first girl that I had ever heard mention anything about a relationship with Jesus. And for about a year and a half, I I got involved in a in a youth group and going to church on Wednesday nights with uh, with a group of kids from school and stuff like that. Um, and it was fun, but it was. It was all about, it was all for her, it was all for for the girl. And it wasn't, there was nothing inside of me that really said, this is genuine, this is sincere. I graduated high school in the spring of 1998 and moved to Hutchison, Kansas to, to get a job because I was, I was offered a basketball scholarship to play ball there. My girlfriend um, figured an hour away was too difficult, and so she broke up with me and called things off and I was really really I was hurt by this I was disappointed but with my newfound freedom that I have living in Hutchison in my own apartment with no parents nobody to keep me in check and no curfew nobody telling me what time I need to be home and what I can and can't do this this freedom I just cut loose with I had no idea of the long-term consequences that were in store because of this life and lifestyle that I was beginning to live after two years at Hutchison Community College, I was offered a dream of a lifetime, and that was to become a member of the University of Kansas men's basketball team. This opportunity presented itself, and I knew I was never going to go play professionally, so I figured you know, I wanted to experience the NCAA tournament. Why not? And so I jumped at it. Although this was an incredible opportunity, what had started at Hutch and where I was at mentally and spiritually, um, this was not a good combination of things to, to happen. I got caught up in the bar scene, I got caught up with the fame, the girls, just the, 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 the college life and yet being a somewhat celebrity on campus and I ran with it. But I had a friend who, who worked at a salon, I went in to see her one day and when I walked in I, I recognized that she had some instrumental hymns playing over the, over the speakers. And it just kind of hit me and just told us like, man, I need to, I need to get back into going to church. And so that Sunday morning, we, we walked into church. I remember just sitting in that seat and just hearing or feeling a voice, didn't, wasn't an audible voice, but just feeling a voice more than anything, whisper in my ear and say, this is where you need to be. And so I remember right then, right there, I promised God, said, God, I am done with my partying. I'm done, I'm gonna start coming to church, I'm gonna get my life back on track, and um, that old me's gone. From that point on, I knew that I needed to surrender completely to Jesus. I knew that I wanted a, a, a personal relationship with Jesus, and the only way I was gonna get that personal relationship was by being at church and learning about Jesus as much as possible. During this time of change in my life, um, the desire to settle down and, and to meet a uh, meet a good girl um, was stirring my heart. But then one Wednesday night, Leslie, Snook back then, she's now Boswell, 
came up to me and asked me if I would be interested in going on a blind date. The following, the following Wednesday night was Valentine's Day. Leslie brings her roommate, Amy Boydston, to church, and we met after church and decided to go across the street to a, to a restaurant, Jose Peppers. And Amy and I sat down and we started to talk and we just clicked. It was a bold first date, I guess you could say, because I spilled my guts to her that night. I told her about everything. I told her you know, all my baggage, but how, how my life had been changed in the past 10 months and how I was, I was growing in a relationship with Jesus and um, there's, it's, a, it's a new me. And one of the and what she said to me, it blew me away. She says, well, as long as that was the old you and that's not who you are anymore, I don't really care about your past. And at this point, I knew that this girl could be special because I had been praying for a special girl who could accept me for all the baggage that I've got. Um, and here, here she, here's this girl saying that, that she's, she's willing to accept me for me as long as that old me doesn't come back. And, and I knew that old me was not coming back. I was amazed. God had answered my prayer, and Amy and I began to date. And 14 months later, April 19th, 2008, uh, we were married. We now have two young kids of our own, a three-year-old and a five-year-old um, son and daughter. We had always, Amy and I had always talked about adopting maybe some older kids, but God kind of answered that prayer calling in a, in a way that we had never imagined. Um, over the past couple years, we've had the privilege of opening our house up to four teenage girls and uh, some of their friends. I still live my life by faith each and every day, one step at a time. But the truth is, Jesus can take anything from our past and turn it around to help out others. That's my story, and that's how following Jesus has made a difference in my life. Yeah, you should put your hands together for that story. You know, Chris and I have had a chance to be a part of each other's biggest days. He was, he was here when we launched the church. I was there at his wedding. The only one that tops both of those things is we went to the Rolls wildcard game together this year. And that's, that, that is just maybe a little below those other two. But it's pretty close. Um, it was a fun event. Listen, the reality of Jesus and his church is this. Jesus' gift of his church to the world was and remains life-changing. Jesus' gift of his church to the world was and remains life-changing. And maybe you have walked in today, like Chris did several years ago, to a church needing to hear the words, your past doesn't matter. Maybe you have walked into church today so that you could hear the words that Chris said, that your past, everything in your past can be turned around and things can be made brand new. And maybe today God is drawing you to himself if that's the case, in just a minute, I'm going to give you the chance to pray, to not just say a prayer to Jesus, but to begin a relationship with Jesus. Because that's why our church exists, to see people who are far from God become passionate, Christian who turn, passionate Christians who turn and make a difference in the world. And we believe, as we've done that now for almost three and a half years, and as we do that in the future, that our next step is to build a building. 
So we've been asking you to pray with us and to pray for us and to pray about helping us. We're building a $4 million building, or we hope to. We're trying to raise a million dollars. The good news is, before we even begin this Difference Maker series on January 11th, $800,000, more than that, had been pledged towards that million. And we knew the final push was having people in our congregation that we felt like God was telling them to help, to give a life-changing gift that might change someone's life who needs Jesus' church. For those of you who are praying over that, you say, okay, well, what, what do I do? If I want to help, what do I do? We're, we're asking everyone to do four things. One, to give a special gift, a life-changing gift, in addition to your normal giving to help us build a building, to give a generous gift, a sacrificial gift. And if God is leading you to give, to pray about what you can give between now and August 1 of 2016, we don't need all of it until the building is being finished next August, hopefully. But to on Sunday, March 1, or before Sunday, March 1, we're calling Commitment Sunday. At that point, we're hoping everyone will lean in and we can know where we stand as a church. But to bring this little commitment card that we've got in your bulletin, if God has led you to give, and I say the same thing every week just because the mechanics of it need to make sense in my head. If God is saying to you, hey, give $1,000 to help build this building, you put $1,000 in that total blank. If you can give 100 of it by March 1, and then the rest of it between March and August, your first fruit offering is 100, the rest of it's going to be 900, then throw that in an envelope between now and March 1 and help us. Now, not everyone is called to do this. And if you're a guest, let me say again, please don't feel like you have to give. You probably shouldn't give. This isn't your church yet. But we'd love for you to come back and get engaged in what we're doing and see if Jesus can change your life here. But the goal of today, while, while moving forward, we want to build a church, the goal of today is to connect people to Jesus. Because the greatest life-changing gift that was ever given to the world was a man, and his name was Jesus. And like you heard Chris say, when people connect to Jesus, your past doesn't matter anymore. And when people connect to Jesus, your past can be turned around, and your future can be made brand new, because a new you can be created who can live the rest of your life making a difference on planet Earth. So if you want to connect to Jesus today, Let's give you a chance to do that. Let's all bow our heads and close our eyes as we pray together. Every head.